I'd also make this comment before we consider the Word of God this morning and the message that if you would go back and take your bulletin and look through the particular scripture that's used and the hymns, you'll see that virtually everything is connected with the scripture and themes and even the message that we come to this morning because we are looking at uh, the miraculous in this particular passage and our call to worship focused upon the miraculous workings of God. And so I just mention that so that you can uh, once again appreciate that God divinely uh, orchestrates his worship beyond what Bruce or I or this week I, I chose the hymn, beyond what I was even expecting. Uh, the second line in the hymn we just sung about the rock and the streams gushing forth from that is connected to one of the passages that we'll be looking at in Scripture this morning. I didn't even anticipate that. But all the way through, you see this again and again in terms of God superintending our work as we try to be faithful worshipers of the living God. Our scripture passage this morning is from Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. <clears throat> and this repeats a little bit of what we looked at last week, but we continue into one of the most significant miracles that we find in the ministry of Christ. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore... He saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go? and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves and fish were five thousand men. Let's pray. Father, we would ask and pray this morning as we consider this passage that your Holy Spirit would be the one teaching us. Lord God, we know that the natural man perceives not the things of the Spirit because they are spiritually discerned. And we would pray that we would be those so worked in by your Holy Spirit that as Scripture is opened up to us, we would see your truth and only your truth. And we would find our hearts inclined to be not only faithfully believing your word, but faithfully following your word. And we pray that, again, our hearts would be so moved 
that as Jesus called us to be salt and light to this world, we would truly see that that is our purpose, that you want us as believers, as ordinary believers, to manifest a witness to this world such that by salt we would make people thirsty for the gospel and by light we would show them the way. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we come to one of the greatest miracle events in the life and ministry of Christ. And we have not particularly focused upon the miracles that Jesus has done as miracles, nor the miraculous powers that Jesus has demonstrated in our study so far in the Gospel of Mark, even though we've actually covered a number of notable miracles. In fact, I did a quick summary uh, from my own thinking about the miracles that we find in the Gospel of Mark. So already we've seen numerous demon expulsions, Uh, We saw the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, the healing of a leper, the healing of a lame man, uh, the man with the withered hand in the synagogue who was healed. Um, We saw Jesus calming the wind and the sea upon the Sea of Galilee. Shortly thereafter, he was expelling the legion of demons from the Gerizim demoniac. Then he healed a woman who had been 12 years with this hemorrhaging blood situation. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And then we're going to come to this miracle where he feeds 5,000 men, which, by the way, uh, doesn't include the children and the wives who were with them. So some estimate as many as 15,000 people were there that afternoon. Further on, Jesus is going to walk on water. He's going to expel a a demon from uh, the Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile woman. Uh, He's going to heal a deaf and speechless man. He's going to multiply bread and fish once again to feed 4,000 on another occasion. He'll heal a blind man. He'll expel a demon to heal a boy who is seized with seizures. He's going to heal blind Bartimaeus. Now, the reason we have the name Bartimaeus, I don't know. Of all the people he heals, he has a name. But I think he must have been one of the disciples. He must have been notable within the early church that it actually singles out the fact, this is the blind, Bartimaeus. Yeah, he was blind. This is the guy who was healed. Finally, Jesus is going to rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. So that encompasses the miracles that we find in the Gospel of Mark. So it's obvious that the miracles perform a vital and essential part of Jesus' ministry. Consequently, it would be a matter of wisdom for us to just take some some time and to focus upon this aspect of Jesus' ministry during his time on earth. And that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to focus on the place of miracles in the life and ministry of Christ because the miraculous forms such a prominent part of the gospel story. And because it does, if we want to faithfully understand Jesus and faithfully follow Jesus and faithfully understand what is this all about in an age and day in which critics are constantly skeptical of the supernatural that we find within the Bible, We need to understand what purpose there is in God doing things in history, and particularly the things in the story of Jesus which are not according to the normal laws of nature. That is to say, we need to understand the exceptional things that God does to better understand the ordinary things that God does. We need to understand the exceptional things which God does because it's in the exceptional that we find God authenticating the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, in light of the story where Jesus feeds 5,000, we can see uh, an example of what the miracles of Jesus were designed to do. And it really points to 
all of the miracles which Jesus did in his ministry. And we can divide that up into three particular functions, three ways in which miracles functioned in the life and ministry of Christ. Uh, First, they functioned as displays of divine power. Secondly, they functioned to signify that Jesus was the God of the Exodus. And thirdly, they function to validate Jesus as the object of saving faith. So in the first place, the miracles which Jesus did, the miracles we find in the life and ministry of Christ, display and they manifest God's sovereign power at work in and through Jesus. But what do we actually mean by the term miracle? The word miracle actually does not really occur in the New Testament per se. What occurs constantly is the word signs and wonders and works, those kinds of things. And we pulled all that together and we've used the word that's so common in sort of Western thinking. Well, this is a miraculous kind of thing. This is, you know, but what do we mean by that? And, and theologians and Christian philosophers have some variations with respect to what that uh, means. And I was reading some of that and I said, oh, that's way too complicated. You know, uh, I'm going I'm to basically define miracle the way we would read it and we'd understand it. So, and that's really what all of them agree upon. Everything that we see that's called a miracle in the Bible uh, would be events and happenings, which are very much out of the ordinary. So that would be sort of the first indication. They're very much out of the ordinary. And then often they are far beyond the ordinary. Uh, and then finally they are even contrary to the ordinary understanding of the way the world works. Events which are not according to the expected or normal laws of nature or the way the world works. So, for instance, with respect to the healings, and so we make some distinctions here. Uh, Are people healed in answer to prayer? Yes. Okay. Are those miracles? Yeah. But are they miracles like what Jesus did? Well, not exactly. Why? Because Jesus healed directly by speech. Jesus would heal someone by the direct exercise of his power. He could touch someone, the person was healed. He could say, be healed. That's extraordinary. Now, I think every answered prayer is a kind of a miracle. But what we see in Jesus' ministry is something far beyond that. It's out of our ordinary expectations with respect to the life that believers have had all through the ages. Look at the demoniacs. Were there demon, um, were there demon exorcisms? Were there, was there the casting out of demons by people other than Jesus? Well, yeah, there's references to Jewish exorcists. Uh, this is not unknown. But the interesting thing is, is that um, demons can be very, 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 very stubborn with respect to anyone else who was trying to cast a demon out. But when Jesus comes along, <laughs> they have to obey the authority of his word to over the supernatural is just so evident and obvious. This is way out of the ordinary. So. And, and then we see uh, the miracles that are contrary to nature. I mean, really <laughs> contrary to nature. Jesus exercises direct control over the wind and over the raging sea. Jesus can confound gravity and the laws of water and buoyancy. He can walk on water, which is a miracle that's coming up. Jesus can reverse death, which we saw in raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. And Jesus then can do the miraculous of multiplying the the loaves and the fishes. Jesus can actually create things, bring things into existence 
by the exercise of his power. So in other words, all of the ordinary forces of nature and the supernatural, which exert their control over us, Jesus has the authority and the power to exert his control over them. And that puts him in one category only, the category of God. So Jesus also then taught the way in which uh, the disciples and others were to understand his miraculous works. Um, In John's gospel, he has this confrontation with the Jewish leaders. John chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. Jesus says this to them. This is one of those points where they want to take him and stone him because of his statement, I and the Father are one. And they're claiming that he's claiming to be God, and he's not denying that. So he says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works themselves that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And the point that Jesus is making is the works of miracles, the miraculous signs and wonders that he is doing, that which he does far beyond the ordinary, that which he has done contrary to the normal expectation of the laws of nature, all of that is a statement. Jesus, the Son, is in union with God, the Father, and he exercises the same power and authority that the Father exercises. Or the Father is exercising all of this power and authority through him. But why then are the miracles rejected? Well, there's an interesting statement early on in the 20th century by this theologian, uh, Rudolf Boltman. And this, this, his statement is famous. It's quoted again and again and again. It wasn't difficult for me to find it. Um, early in the 20th century, maybe around 1921, he says this. It is impossible to use electric lights and the wireless. How many of you know what the wireless is? Lily, do you know what the wireless is? It's a radio. So you've got the wireless. And to avail themselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries, and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. Basically, uh, Boltman was saying, as a theologian, he was saying, look, uh, we have basically come to the point where we live in the world that the greatest marvels are all done by science. It's impossible to believe in the world that we believe in, the modern worldview, and still believe in that ancient worldview that New Testament world is written in, where they believe in spirits and miracles and things like that. Now, the interesting thing is that this statement now is 100 years old, and it still remains the constant plank in the platform of what most atheists will claim, that science has demonstrated the impossibility, or at least the highest improbability, that the miraculous could ever happen. It's also the case that so many so-called biblical scholars will claim that biblical people were prone to believe in miracles because of the worldview that ancient people possessed. Because the ancients did not really understand how the world truly worked, because they were pre-scientific people, they explained the forces of nature as being really supernatural entities at work. So they expected miracles to happen, like 
Right and left, they expected miracles to happen. You find these kinds of statements among New Testament, Old Testament theologians who are critical scholars who really fall in line with that scientific perspective. But in fact, as C.S. Lewis has noted in a number of different ways in his writings, as many other scholars have pointed out, this claim about the ancient people is a scholarly fiction. It's a scholarly fiction. It is not the case that ancient peoples were more prone to believe in miracles than people are today. It's not the case that people in a pre-scientific era were more gullible than people are today. If you're talking about a quotient for gullibility, people today in America, and maybe it's the public education system, they're just as gullible as people in the ancient world. But even within the gospel stories themselves, people were so often surprised at the power of Jesus to the point of even being skeptical. Are you familiar with the story in John chapter 9, the healing of the man born blind? What goes on in that story is almost humorous in terms of the skepticism that's displayed there. The Jewish leaders, when, when they encounter this man who's been born blind, they, they are, they're deeply opposed to the fact that this man who could now see had ever been blind at all. Uh, they want to talk to his parents. And his parents come along and they talk to the parents and say, hey, he's of age, talk to him. I mean, they could hardly believe that he had been born blind and now could see. And even the people who had known him, the text says, even the people were saying, is that the same guy? No, it can't be the same guy. The truth is, believing in the God revealed in the Scriptures and in Jesus Christ does not make a person gullible. But it does make a person intelligently consistent that since God exists, he has all the power necessary or needed over his creation to work any kind of miracle he chooses to work. In other words, if you say, yes, I believe in God, but I can't believe in miracles, there's something that's not properly logically connecting in your mind. But why, then, are the miraculous events and happenings essential to the person and work of Christ? Now, that's a study in itself. But the very simple answer is this. The redemption of lost sinners fully requires a Redeemer who has sovereign power over all of the forces and powers of creation. That's why these miracles are absolutely essential. There has to be the demonstration that the Redeemer has sovereign power over all of the forces of nature and all of the forces of the supernatural. Now, a second function of the miracles, as we find it presented to us in this passage, is this. The miracles function as a sign connected to the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah and to point to Jesus as God of the Exodus. Now, there, there are Christians who go, what? Jesus is the God of the Exodus? 
Well, this isn't something that Reformed people have invented. Uh, what, in fact, we find in Scripture is that the miraculous signs have this spiritual significance connecting Jesus to the Messianic expectation. But some of these miracles in particular reflect the redemptive themes of the Exodus and actually point to Jesus as the one who delivered Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. Now, a passage that demonstrates this with great clarity. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first four verses. Now, with those ideas in mind, listen to what Paul says. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Did you hear that? Who was with the Israelites in the wilderness wanderings? Paul is saying it was Christ. In fact, the word rock here is incredibly significant. Uh, Paul relates several elements of the, the whole Exodus experience that the Israelites produced. He relates them to Christ. He relates these activities to the activities of the rock that followed them. All of Paul's readers, especially the Jewish readers, would have connected the reference to the rock, not only to the rock that was spoken to and the rock that was struck and the water that flowed out, but at the end of Moses' life, after those events have happened, Moses picks up the term rock and he identifies the term rock with the God who appeared to him in the burning bush, the God who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he says, this is your God, O Israel. Now listen to these statements out of the Song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, 15, 18, 30, and 31. Moses says this, the song he taught the Israelites to sing, the rock, his work is perfect. For all of his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he, verse 15. But Jeshuan, which is another name for Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat and stout and sleek. Then you forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of your salvation. Verse 18. You were... This is, again, speaking about Israel's disobedience in the wilderness. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Verse 30. And then he talks about how God, being with his people, made them such a formidable um, army whenever he needed to. So Moses says, How could one, meaning one Israelite, have chased a thousand, and two put 10,000 to flight. Unless their rock, speaking of the enemies of Israel, unless their rock had sold him and the Lord had given them up, for their rock is not as our rock. 
the term rock there being synonymous with what is your ultimate spiritual anchor point? What is your God? Moses referred to the God of Israel as the rock. The rock of the Exodus. The rock of the burning bush. The rock of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The rock who is the I Am. And Paul says this rock was Christ. So not only is this a rather strong statement that Jesus Christ is God, Paul is making it clear that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was himself with the Israelites in the wilderness, that he was the Redeemer God of the Israelites. And this is further stated in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 15, speaking of that Exodus generation, when Paul says, we must not put Christ to the test. Meaning, New Testament church, Corinthians. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And they were destroyed by serpents. So all of this is clear. That what's going on in terms of Paul's analysis here is that we've got to connect Jesus Christ to these great redemptive themes that we find in Exodus. And in addition, thinking again about what Paul has said, we should not miss the references in verses 2 and 3 with respect to the sea and the spiritual food. The sea refers to where God controlled the wind and the sea at the crossing of the Red Sea. And the spiritual food refers to the daily provision in the heavenly manna. Here are the two greatest miracles of the Exodus. In the history of Israel, nothing was greater than the parting of the Red Sea and the feeding of the people of Israel for their 40 years of wandering. God controlling the most powerful elements of nature. Then God making miraculous provision for his people to feed them. And we see then the same demonstration of power in the Lord Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 4, 38 to 40, there he is, controlling the sea and the wind when he calms the storm. And now, in this passage, he's going to demonstrate that he can take the bread, the fish, he can multiply this food, he can provide that provision for his people. Jesus commands the wind and sea, they obey him. Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fish, he feeds the 5,000. And in the Gospel of John, with respect to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus identifies himself there with the God of Israel, the God who provided the heavenly manna. Because what we find in that passage, John 6, beginning at verse 28, the people say to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? <laughs> when you read this some point, stop at this point and ask yourself, spiritual denseness. They've already been fed. The 5,000 have already been fed. This is his summary comments and teaching to them. 
what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus connected himself with the great event of God's provision to the Israelites. And Jesus saying that he is that and he is more. He is the fulfillment because he is the true bread of life. The point is, these miracles had the meaning of signifying, they function as signs to point to Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. And, and Jesus even taught this to be so with respect to, remember John the Baptist when he was imprisoned. Uh, this is accounted in, 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 in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, where what we find is, is that John, in prison, he hears about the deeds of Christ, he sends word by his disciples, and, and they say to Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? What's Jesus' response? Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus was saying, disciples, go back. Tell them of the works which I do, because the works which I do are the message. This is the Messiah. And once again, that passage we looked at in John chapter 10, where Jesus confronts the uh, Pharisees, the Jewish leaders. And he basically says there, if you don't believe me and what I say, believe the works which I have done. The main point is this, that when Jesus fed the multitudes, there was in this miracle itself the statement, I am the bread of life, the bread which gives life everlasting. And at the same time, the message was, I am the one who also fed Israel in the wilderness. The Messiah is the one who has come into this world. He is the same rock that was with Israel. And he's always been the rock of Israel, the one who made covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the third function of the miraculous is this. Now, the miracles that Jesus did were designed to validate Jesus as the object of faith. And especially so with respect to the multiplication of the bread and the fish, both to the multitudes and to Jesus excuse me, the multitudes and to disciples of Jesus, this miracle was designed to validate personal faith in him. Because in the first place, this whole miracle of feeding the 5,000 was pointing to and demonstrating that Jesus was the good shepherd. We remember in verse 34 where it says that the reaction of Jesus to seeing the great multitude was the action and reaction of compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so we see there the, the compassionate heart of Jesus looking and seeing the, the genuine deep spiritual need and that's when he begins to teach them many things. 
But even more than that, it's the reaction of, of a true spiritual shepherd who cares for the whole person, not just part of the person, the whole person. So actually, after teaching the multitudes many things, giving them true nourishment for their souls, Jesus also intends to feed them physically. This is what makes the story a vital message about Jesus as the object of faith. When Jesus, when the disciples come to Jesus, I want you to think about this. Jesus could have assented to their recommendation. Their recommendation was, hey, this is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Uh, send everybody away to go in the surrounding countryside and villages so they can buy something to eat. Jesus could have said, yes, great recommendation. Uh, I didn't realize how late it was getting. Uh, you know, time is in my hands. I just didn't realize it was just, you know, the clock was moving here. Uh, and he could have said, this is great. You're thinking about their welfare. Uh, you, you know, you're, you have this compassion for them too. I've been thinking about the spiritual things. You're thinking about the physical things. Uh, you know, it would be difficult if it's after dark when people go in to find something. Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, we should send them away. All of that would have made sense. There would have been a certain kind of common human wisdom. But the story of what Jesus does here, of course, goes in the opposite direction. He wasn't willing to send them away. In fact, you know, his instructions to them is this. You give them something to eat. And, of course, they're flummoxed. They, how are they going to do this? You know, they look it up and they go, hey, we've got five loaves and two fishes. You know, 200 denarii isn't enough to take care of this whole thing. A denarii was a day's wage. How in the world are they going to... Would they even have time? Could they even do this? It's like totally beyond their expectation. Jesus, you've just said for us to do this? You see, the importance there is that you and I will be called upon in some ways in our Christian life, in lots of ways in our Christian life, to do something that will be just as impossible in your own thinking about yourself and in your own resources as what Jesus was telling the disciples to do. Every Christian who wants to follow Jesus is going to come up upon something that's going to seem like, you're asking me to feed the 5,000? This is beyond what I can do. I can't do this. This is more than I can do. Where in the world would I get enough to take care of this situation in front of me that you've placed in front of me? Where? <laughs> Impossible. What Jesus does, he does to direct the disciples to understand that he is the Lord of all creation. All resources, as meager as they might seem, are under his sovereign control. And that's what this whole episode is about. Demonstrating to the disciples that in following him, they were going to face situations and encounter things that were going to be so much beyond their abilities and their visible resources. And Jesus says, have them sit down in groups of 50 and 100. He blesses the food, begins to distribute. And at the end of this whole thing, it's not just that everybody is happy and fed. There are 12 baskets left over that are full. 12 to symbolize the fullness of Israel. 
12 to symbolize the fullness of the apostles and the apostolic church to come. 12 to demonstrate that Jesus has the ability to fill the entire world with his resources. And therefore, he will always be able to enable the disciples to do whatever God calls them to do. And and, in all of this, does he not show himself to be the fulfillment of Psalm 23, the very first verse? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. We need that message every day. We need to be able to say, God of wonders, God of all creation, the God who is my shepherd, I have placed my faith in you. You've called me to yourself. You are my shepherd, and I believe I will lack nothing. Let's pray. Enable us, Almighty God, to truly believe in every way that you, the shepherd of Israel, are our shepherd. If you fed the 5,000, then you can truly multiply whatever we have to do whatever you call us to do in the ordinary and even extraordinary ways of the Christian life. And so we give you thanks for the miraculous, which confirms, authenticates, strengthens our faith in you, in Jesus, in his name. Amen.